Laud, O Zion, your salvation. Laud with hymns of exultation, Christ your King and Shepherd true. Welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I am your host, Matthew Arnold. Great to have you along with us right here on VMPR. And the confusion stops here. At the beginning of this week, last Sunday, Catholics around the United States celebrated the Feast of Corpus Christi, the body of Christ. And this is a perfect time to remind Catholics about the Church's teaching on the real presence of Christ in the Holy Eucharist and our responsibility to discern uh, the body of Christ and to examine ourselves to be, resure, uh, to be sure that we only receive a communion when we believe ourselves to be in a state of grace. And I think this is especially pertinent given the fact that uh, as the U.S. bishops are preparing to meet, they are preparing a discussion on this very topic, having a comprehensive or a cohesive, I think is the term they're using, uh, Eucharistic policy regarding um, withholding communion from notorious public sinners and heretics like uh, so-called pro-abortion, so-called Catholics uh, and Catholic politicians. Now, although one would hope (laughs) the answer would be obvious, um, but uh, that uh, tells us where we are today. So, you know, given it uh, that the extraordinary form of the Mass at my parish also translated the uh, Feast of Corpus Christi to this last Sunday, which is the, traditionally it's on the Thursday after Trinity Sunday, but they moved it until this Sunday. So it kind of gives us a chance to uh, compare the two liturgies a little bit. Uh, The major difference, of course, uh, first off being that there is in the ordinary form, in the new Mass, there is a uh, the addition of an Old Testament reading, but there was also a change in the epistle and the communion antiphon. Now, in the extraordinary form, which uh, I was pleased to assist at this last Sunday, the epistle is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 29. Brethren, I myself have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread and, giving thanks, broke and said, Take and eat. This is my body, which shall be given up for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In like manner also the cup, after he had supped, saying, This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you shall eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man prove himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks unworthily, without distinguishing the body, eats and drinks judgment to himself. Now, this passage doesn't need any explanation to a faithful Catholic, and it's particularly suited to the Feast of Corpus Christi, and lets us know why the uh, feast was instituted in the first place, which was uh, confusion over the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. We're going to talk a a bit about that more uh, a little later on. Also, uh, germane to the upcoming U.S. Bishops' Conference is St. Paul's warning in this epistle against sacrilegious communion. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks the cup unworthily will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man prove himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks unworthily, without distinguishing the body, eats and drinks judgment to himself. And then those verses are repeated as the communion antiphon for Corpus Christi. 
Now, in the ordinary form, okay, the Novus Ordo uh, Mass, the epistle for Corpus Christi was changed to Hebrew, uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 15, which teaches about how the Old Testament animal sacrifices um, were fulfilled in the sacrifice of Christ. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a heifer's ashes can sanctify those who are defiled so that their flesh is cleansed, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, clean the consciences of from dead works to worship the living God? So, so I mean, and perfect, that's well suited, but why the change? Um, perhaps it is because the uh, passage from 1 Corinthians 11 is also the epistle for Holy Thursday. And so, again, perhaps the architects of the Novus Ordo Missae did not want to repeat that reading twice in a year. But I think there's more to it than that. Uh, Because even when that passage from 1 Corinthians does appear in the ordinary form liturgy on, on Holy Thursday, it stops at verse 26. And so it omits verses 27 through 29 about the consequences of eating and drinking unworthily. Now, you know, why should that be? Well, I, there's actually a reason for it. It's because the committee that put together the new liturgy, and uh, perhaps it's well to remember that it wasn't the Second Vatican Council, it wasn't Pope Paul VI, it was a, it was a committee <laughs> that made this decision that, uh, that no one should be uncomfortable uh, by going to Mass. You know, going to Mass shouldn't make you uncomfortable. And so they took it upon themselves to remove from the Scripture readings and the prayers of the Holy Mass virtually all references to what they termed negative theology. And what's that? Okay, so anything in the Bible or the prayers that talks about eternal damnation or the wrath of God or how sin is the uh, um, greatest of evils. Okay, you don't want to think about your personal sins being the greatest evils. Now, all those things were excised from the readings and the prayers of the New Missal. Now, statistics today show that 70%, more than 70% of Catholics do not know the Church's teaching regarding the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And maybe part of the reason is the fact that Catholics attending the Novus Ordo have not heard St. Paul's warning against sacrilegious communions proclaimed in the Mass for over 50 years. Whereas from the year of our Lord 1312 until the year of our Lord 1969, those powerful and inspired words of St. Paul were proclaimed in the Holy Mass three times every year. And as I've often said, (laughs) no pun intended, as I have often said, repetition is the mother of learning. And that's why although 70% of today's Catholics don't know the Church's teaching on the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, in the 1950s, any Catholic second grader would have been able to recite the answer straight from the Baltimore Catechism because they had to memorize that in order to receive their First Holy Communion. Okay, and that is no nonsense. Now, I'd like to share just a little bit of the history uh, of Corpus Christi, how it came about and why. You know, it, uh, it wasn't universally celebrated in the church until the year 1312, but it was first uh, celebrated locally in the city of Liege in Belgium. And the inspiration for the feast came about um, through a devout nun of the city of Liege who claimed that our Lord himself appeared to her and requested the, the, the feast. Now, the church, of course, already celebrates the institution of the Eucharist every year on Maundy Thursday and Holy Week. 
uh, which is the anniversary of the Last Supper. But our Lord told uh, Sister that this new feast was to have a different emphasis. And it came at a time, as I mentioned before, not unlike our own, where there was widespread confusion about the doctrine of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist and about receiving communion. Uh, particularly in those days, um, it, you know, it was about people who did not want to receive communion and who, who uh, oftentimes put off receiving communion until they had the last rites because they didn't consider themselves holy enough, which is kind of the reverse of the situation today. Um, so anyway, the feast was first celebrated locally, uh, and in the year 1247, Robert, who was Bishop of Liege, determined to make it a celebration throughout the whole diocese. Unfortunately, uh, his untimely death kept that from happening. However, a friend of his uh, became Pope Urban IV, and he instituted the feast um, in the year 1264. And, it, and so it was celebrated locally uh, from that time in, in different places. And then um, it was confirmed by Pope Clement V, his successor, the Council of Vienne in 1311, which fixed a date for the feast as the Thursday after Trinity Sunday and commanded that it be celebrated throughout the entire church, right? So it became part of the universal calendar in 1312, right, the following year. Once upon a time, Corpus Christi was a holy day of obligation, uh, and it was traditional, of course, for there to be Eucharistic processions on that day. Uh, And it has since been translated to Sunday. And as I mentioned, this year, even the extraordinary form a celebration of the Mass translated Corpus Christi from the Thursday after Trinity Sunday uh, to a couple of days ago, right, to the, the following Sunday. Now, at, at my parish, um, for the last, I don't know, several years, with the exception of last year because of, uh, because of the COVID, uh, <laughs> my parish usually holds an annual Eucharistic procession on Corpus Christi. And so, uh, thanks be to God, we were able to uh, do that again this year. So on Sunday, we had our, our Eucharistic procession. So, so the Feast of Corpus Christi uh, instituted uh, celebration of uh, solemn, or celebrated with solemn profession, processions, um, and really there were six reasons behind the feast and the celebration. And the first is to declare openly and publicly, both to the faithful and to the world at large, hence the procession, uh, the Church's belief in the real and substantial presence of Jesus Christ in the Holy Sacrament of the Altar. That's number one. It's a witness. Uh, number two was in order to demonstrate in the sight of heaven and earth the honor and the adoration that we owe, as Scripture says, to him before whom every knee shall bow. And then to give, uh, number three, to give thanks for the institution of the sacrament and especially for all the graces that have been conferred upon us, uh, conferred upon the faithful through the Blessed Sacrament. And that's especially at a time um, like our own, where, uh, you know, it's so needful uh, because so many communities of non-Catholic Christians, and even many Catholics, unfortunately, really don't understand that the graces that Christ won on the Holy Cross are communicated to the world precisely through the sacraments of the Church He established. All right, we're going to talk about um, the rest of the reasons behind Corpus Christi and an interesting story about the Laude Zion, the sequence uh, for the and how it came to be. All of that and lots more when we return to Nonsense Catholic. Welcome back. 
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Uh, Matthew Arnold here for Original Most Powerful Radio. Before the break, we were talking about the reasons for the introduction of the uh, Feast of Corpus Christi. First off, as a witness to the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Secondly, to show the uh, profound adoration that we adore to Christ, who is present in the sacrament. To give public thanks for all the graces conferred by the sacrament. And um, now number four, for uh, reparation. Uh, into, you know, through our solemn adoration, we try and make up in some small way for the many wrongs that have been done to our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, especially for sacrilegious communions. And then number five is to bring God's blessing down upon the land and the people. Again, another reason why we don't just have the Mass, but Traditionally on Corpus Christi, there are Eucharistic processions where they take the Blessed Sacrament out into the community. And then number six, to show that Jesus, as true God, is not merely present in temples built by hands, as the Bible would have it, but that um, he has heaven for his throne and earth for his footstool, and that he has the hearts of the faithful, the hearts of the faithful all around the world, especially who receive him worthily in Holy Communion, as his temple, that in that way it's through the, we're the reception of communion that we really are the body of Christ. Now, when Pope Clement instituted the uh, Feast of Corpus Christi back in the 14th century, right, 1311, I think it was, he needed to have an official mass and office composed for the feast, which would then be added to the calendar in 1312. And so the church called upon uh, two of the greatest living theologians of their day, and really of, of any day, um, namely the great Franciscan doctor of the church, St. Bonaventure, and the universal doctor, St. Thomas Aquinas. Now, I don't know, little known fact, um, once upon a time, St. Bonaventure and St. Thomas Aquinas were both professors at the University of Paris. And in fact, I believe their professorships overlapped at one point, which means that uh, theoretically there could have been you know, students at the University of Paris who were studying philosophy and theology from St. Bonaventure and St. Thomas Aquinas at the same time, which is just, just incredible. But uh, in any event, both these great doctors of the Church were called upon by the Pope to compose the Mass and the Divine Office for this feast that they were going to add to the Universal Calendar. And uh, according to tradition when they came to present um, their work, Aquinas went first. And when Bonaventure um, heard Aquinas's Mass for the feast, he tore up his submission. He said, I, you know, it's not even, you're not, he wouldn't even uh, present it. And, and the primary reason was the sequence that St. Thomas composed for the feast, which is called the Lauda Zion. And now a sequence, it's like a hymn. And, uh, and there were thousands of sequences uh, composed during the Middle Ages. Um, the Lauda Zion today is one of only five that's still used in the liturgy. But it is at once a beautiful hymn. But it's, at the same time, it is a masterpiece of theology on the Holy Eucharist from the universal doctor of the Church. And, uh, and it's an example of how Complex concepts can be communicated more comprehensibly through the use of, of poetry 
than even the most comprehensive prose. Uh, today's feast uh, is uh, the Feast of St. Ephraim. And back during the Arian crisis, one of the ways that they were spreading the Arian heresy was through songs, popular songs. And St. Ephraim composed songs um, about the, the fact that Jesus was both man and God to combat the Arian heresy. So you, again, you can see how um, you know, it's, it's a, an, an easy way to communicate some very profound truths. Uh, and when Bonaventure heard the loud of Zion, he said, oh, well, forget it, you know, don't even, don't even listen to mine. Now, um, it's an example, like I said, uh, and, and the loud of Zion speaks directly to the heart. Even though it's giving us some complex intellectual concepts, it, you know, it kind of bypasses and goes straight to the heart. So anyway, I want to share what made <laughs> a great doctor and saint of the church like Bonaventure tear up his own work. Um, and the more so because if you assisted at the ordinary form of the Mass on Sunday, which you probably did, given the fact that most of the people who listen to this program uh, are not uh, people that go to the extraordinary form of the Mass. But uh, it, it's, it's entirely possible that if you went to the uh, Novus Ordo Mass on Sunday, you did not hear the Lauda Zion. Or if you did, you didn't hear all of it. Because like so many things in the ordinary form, the Lauda Zion is now optional. And if that was the case for you, we're going to remedy that right now. And either way, we're going to look at, uh, at uh, the meaning, you know, and kind of unpack the verse by verse, the Lauda Zion. And, and before we begin, I'm going to tell you that I'm reading from the English translation of the Lauda Zion from the ordinary form, from the Novus Ordo Missal. And... Um, First off, because if you did hear it at Mass, uh, you probably, that's the translation you heard. I read along with the traditional translation while the Scola chanted it in Latin <laughs> last Sunday. But I know that that's not everybody's experience. And so uh, um, also I think because of the uh, corrected translation of the Novus Ordo Missal that was um, uh, introduced in 2010 under Pope Benedict XVI has really... Um, you know, it's a really a boon to the church. It's, it's a, a terrific that, that they kind of took care of some of that language. And I think it really manages to retain much of the beauty of the Latin original. So the first stanzas are by way of introduction. Laud, O Zion, your salvation. Laud with hymns of exultation. Christ, your king and shepherd true. So for Aquinas, Zion represents the church, right? It's the new Israel. And laud means praise. So this little introduction begins with a call for the church to praise Christ, our heavenly King and Good Shepherd. Bring him all the praise you know. He is more than you bestow. Never can you reach his due. So we should praise Christ with all our strength and, and will and all our hearts because he gives us far more than we can ever return. Therefore, it is impossible to give Jesus too much praise because it's impossible to ever give him enough praise. Uh, special theme for glad thanksgiving is the quickening and the living bread today. Uh, let me fix my poetic meter. Special theme for glad thanksgiving is the quickening and the living bread today before you set. So Eucharist means thanksgiving and the special theme for this particular Eucharist 
that is, for this Holy Mass, is the real presence of Christ in the Blessed Sacrament. And the special theme for this Mass is the quickening and the living bread. Quickening means uh, giving life, particularly the, uh, the life of the Spirit, so the eternal life that Jesus, uh, the living bread, promised to everyone who would eat his flesh and drink his blood. Okay? So now uh, Aquinas turns to the institution of the sacrament. He says, From his hands of old partaken, as we know by faith unshaken, where the twelve at supper met. So now we recall the first Eucharist, which was celebrated by Jesus himself, and the apostles were the first communicants. They were the very first to receive from his own holy and venerable hands his body and blood in Holy Communion. Full and clear, ring out your chanting. Joy nor sweetest grace be wanting. From your heart let praises burst. For today the feast is holden when the institution olden of that supper was rehearsed. Now, Corpus Christi was originally celebrated on the Thursday after Trinity Sunday because it's a special, uh, special memorial of the institution of the Eucharist at the Last Supper, which was on Holy Thursday. But unlike Maundy Thursday, where the emphasis is the Passion, the emphasis of the new feast is the many benefits that we derive from the sacrament. Here the new laws, new oblation, by the new king's revelation, ends the form of ancient rite. As Paul says in the book of Hebrews, one greater than Moses is here. And so from the Last Supper onwards, the followers of Christ will no longer celebrate the Passover, will no longer offer the the blood of sheep and, and bulls at the temple, but will worship God in spirit and truth by celebrating the Holy Mass, which makes present the once and for all sacrifice of the cross, the sacrifice of the true Lamb of God. And St. Thomas continues, Now the new, the old effaces. Truth away the shadow chases. Light dispels the gloom of night. This refers to the fact that the sacrifices of the Old Testament were just types and figures that foreshadowed their fulfillment in uh, Jesus' sacrifice of the cross and the celebration of the Holy Mass. For uh, while the old sacrifices were pleasing to God, they could not restore the relation with him broken by the sins of man. Only the sacrifice of Christ, the light of the world, uh, as Thomas would have him here, was able to redeem mankind and make it possible for us to leave behind the darkness of the state of sin and enter into the light of the state of grace. What he did at supper seated, Christ ordained to be repeated, his memorial ne'er to cease. This is the fulfillment of the prophet of Malachi, uh, Malachias, right? Malachi. From the rising of the sun even to the going down, my name is great among the Gentiles. And in every place there is sacrifice, and there is offered to my name a clean oblation. For my name is great among the Gentiles, saith the Lord of hosts. Our Lord, once and for all, sacrifice on Calvary means there will be no more need for animal sacrifices. Rather, the one true sacrifice of Christ that he himself made sacramentally present at the Last Supper, a clean oblation, 
will continue to be made present in the holy sacrifice of the Mass, which he commanded to be celebrated until the end of time. Um, and I would suggest to you that St. John's vision of heaven, that, that, uh, that the worship of God will just continue throughout eternity. And even during the, the coronavirus hysteria, when, when churches were shut down all around the world, and the faithful were deprived of Holy Communion, even then, the Mass continued. And priests uh, uh, acting in the person of Christ continued to raise the host and chalice every hour of the day, you know, around the world and around the clock. So it never stopped. And his rule for guidance taking, bread and wine we hallow, making thus our sacrifice of peace. Simply put, at the consecration, the priest uh, does what Jesus did and fulfills his command to do this as a commemoration of me. And there's lots more that we're going to get to when we return. Uh, and the next, very next stanza turns from the institution to the doctrine of the transubstantiation. Very beautiful. I hope you guys are enjoying this. Uh, got lots more. Also going to be talking uh, about uh, the precepts of the church and some other stuff when we come back with lots more on No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic on uh, this Feast of St. Ephraim, who, as we mentioned earlier, was a saint who combated the Arian heresy by setting the doctrine of the hypostatic union, that is, that Christ is one person in two natures, uh, and setting that to music, making, uh, spreading the doctrine through song. And we are talking right now about the sequence from Corpus Christi composed by St. Thomas Aquinas called the Lauda Zion and unpacking all of the rich theological teaching in that uh, amazing song. So, uh, the next stanza is, This the truth each Christian learns. Bread into his flesh he turns. To his precious blood, the wine. Uh, you see, that there it is, you know, in a nutshell, that is the doctrine of transubstantiation, that the substance of bread and wine truly become the body and blood of Christ. And this is the great truth that uh, Thomas Aquinas says every Christian learns. Unfortunately, due to decades of poor catechesis and uh, in no small measure the arrangement of the new order of the Mass, this truth is not believed by uh, far too many Christians, even Catholic ones. But for those who do accept the reality of the Holy Eucharist, Aquinas said, Sight has failed, nor thought conceives, but a dauntless faith believes resting on a power divine. Catholics believe in the doctrine of the real presence of uh, that Jesus Christ, true God and true man, is substantially present in the Eucharist under the appearances of bread and wine. But as, as Aquinas says here, we can't fully understand it because it's above human reason. It's a supernatural mystery, and yet we believe with a dauntless faith. We take Jesus at his word because he's God. Jesus proclaimed to his followers, Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. That's John 6, uh, 53. And many of his disciples stopped following him because they couldn't understand. And then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also wish to leave? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
we have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And so here St. Peter shows us one of the important ways in which we follow Christ, that we take Jesus at his word because it is the word of God. Our belief, as Aquinas says, rests on his divine power. Jesus himself said, All power in heaven on earth is given me, and I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We believe in all the truths that the Holy Catholic Church believes and teaches because God has revealed them, who can neither deceive nor be deceived. Amen. Okay, here beneath these signs are hidden, priceless things to sense forbidden. Signs, not things, are all we see. And so here Aquinas points out that while the substance of the bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ, the accidents remain. To our senses, the Eucharist looks, smells, tastes, and feels like bread and wine. But by faith, we know that the substance has really changed into his body and blood. He continues, Blood is poured and flesh is broken. Yet in either wondrous token, Christ entire we know to be. Whoso of this food partakes does not rend the Lord nor breaks. Christ is whole to all that taste. So here is the uh, profound truth that Christ is present, whole and entire, body, blood, soul, and divinity, even in the smallest particle uh, of the host or, or the single drop of precious blood from the chalice. Thousands are as one receivers, one as thousands of believers, eats of him who cannot waste. We are all one body, united in holy communion with Christ who is eternal. It's a beautiful and consoling truth, and it's one that Aquinas places here because he's about to share another important uh, doctrinal truth, and I fear uh, these days too often neglected. Bad and good the feast are sharing, of what diverse dooms preparing, endless death or endless life. Life to these, to those damnation. See how like participation is with unlike issues rife. Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the blood of man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. Whosoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. John 53, 54. Uh, John 6, 53 and 54. But remember, we also read in 1 Corinthians 11, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily will have to answer for the body and blood of the Lord. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Or as St. Thomas would have it, not just judgment, but damnation. How can this be? Well, you remember the parable of the weeds and the wheat. God allows both the good and the bad to remain in his church. The farmer doesn't uproot the weeds to avoid uprooting the wheat as well. However, at the harvest, he separates the weeds from the wheat. Likewise, our Lord will separate the, the, the sheep from the goats and the weeds from the wheat on the last day, when the wheat will be gathered into barns and the weeds bundled together to be burned. Sequence continues. When the sacrament is broken, doubt not, but believe tis spoken that each severed outward token doth the very whole contain. 
Not the precious gift divides, breaking but the sign betides. Jesus still the same abides, still unbroken doth remain. Here, St. Thomas, the, the Church's greatest theologian, greatest catechist, greatest apologist, answers the questions, if both the host and chalice contain the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ, why does the priest consecrate them separately? Why does the priest break the host after the consecration? Well, the separate consecrations represent how Jesus' body and blood were separated uh, when he shed his blood on the precious, uh, his precious blood on the cross, right? But he's saying, look, th- these are these are just outward signs; these are tokens of, of what had happened. Um, uh, let's see, the breaking of the host before communion is done in remembrance of Christ breaking the bread at the Last Supper uh, to give communion to the apostles. Also, when the priest breaks the host, he places uh, one little particle into the chalice. Because, you know, just as that separate uh, consecration of the bread and wine signifies our Lord's death, the reunion of the particle uh, of the host in the chalice is significant of his resurrection. And St. Thomas's point is that despite the symbolism of the separate consecrations and the breaking of the consecrated host, Jesus continues to be present, whole and entire, in every particle of uh, the host and the chalice. The, the separated consecrations represent the shedding of Christ's precious blood, but it is the risen Christ that we receive. Christ no longer suffers. There's no question that we are, you know, re-sacrificing Christ over and over the way some of the Protestants think. But that one and f- once and for all sacrifice is being made present through the sacrament. Now, this is uh, quite a profound theological dissertation contained within an absolutely beautiful hymn. And, you know, I wish the, the people at uh, Oregon Catholic Press would take some notes, because uh, this is proof positive that it is entirely possible to compose a hymn that is both beautiful and theologically accurate. But I digress. Uh, unfortunately, I'm sorry to say uh, that I suspect most uh, Catholics, perhaps even you, listening right now, who assisted at the ordinary form of the Mass, uh, did not hear the part of the Lauda Zion that we just uh, went over. Because after Vatican II, um, the, the part of the Lauda Zion that we just read, the first two-thirds, in fact, with all of that rich theological content, was made optional for the new Mass. And the shorter form of the sequence doesn't even begin until the next uh, stanza. And so we'll continue. Lo, the angel's food is given to the pilgrim who has striven See the children's bread from heaven, which on dogs may not be spent. Now that's a reference to Christ's words that um, the one who perseveres to the end will be saved, and his words to the Canaanite woman uh, who asked him to heal her daughter when he said, let the children first be filled, uh, because you do not give the children's food to the dogs. Here St. Thomas is saying that, that Holy Communion is only for those who are united in faith as members of the body of Christ, which is the Catholic Church. That's why we don't allow non-Catholics to receive communion. Even then, receiving communion is only for those who have striven, that is, those who are in a state of grace, those who are well disposed to receive. And in the next verse, he mentions how the Blessed Sacrament fulfills the Old types or the Old Testament types of our Lord's bloody sacrifice on the cross and the holy sacrifice of the Mass. I should say, um, 
fulfills the Old Testament types in his sacrifice and the Mass. Truth, the ancient types fulfilling, Isaac bound, a victim willing, Paschal lamb, its lifeblood spilling, manna to the Father's sent. So Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac and the Passover and the manna in the desert, the, the, the miraculous bread from heaven given to the chosen people during the Exodus, all of this is both foreshadowed and fulfilled in the Holy Eucharist. And now Aquinas addresses Christ directly. Very bread, good shepherd, tend us. Jesu, of your love, befriend us. You refresh us. You defend us. Your eternal goodness send us in the land of life to see. So here we're calling upon Jesus for all his many blessings um, and, and for visible signal graces that we so need in this life, uh, invoking him as the true bread of heaven and our good shepherd and our best friend. And if you ever doubt that Jesus is your best friend, Recall his own words in the scriptures. You see, I no longer call you servants, but friends. He says, no one has greater love than this and to give up his life for his friends, which he did for you and for me. And finally, the angelic doctor begs God, who is almighty and all-knowing, to grant us the grace to join with the saints in the heavenly banquet by receiving him in communion in this life and joining him in the eternal banquet in the next with the words that we'll share when we come back with uh, more No-Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Welcome back. Final round here on No-Nonsense Catholic. Um, and we are now at the very last uh, verse of the Lauda Zion. This magnificent hymn, uh, technically sequence, to the uh, in honor of the Blessed Sacrament written by Thomas Aquinas for this great feast. The final stanza, he says, You who all things can and know, he's, he's addressing Christ, You who all things can and know, who on earth such food bestow, grant us with your saints, though lowest, where the heavenly feast you show, fellow heirs and guests to be. Amen. Hallelujah. A beautiful conclusion to a profound and humbling uh, uh, sequence. It gives us this amazing truth that through baptism we are the adopted sons and daughters of God, brothers and sisters of Christ, and thereby fellow heirs with Christ to the kingdom of heaven. And as such, we are called to be guests at the wedding supper of the Lamb, the eternal heavenly liturgy which touches earth, where earth and heaven intersect in the holy sacrifice of the Mass, where you and I, clothed with the wedding garment of sanctifying grace, may receive the miraculous bread from heaven, which is the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ in the Holy Eucharist. How very blessed we are, and how criminal to take such an honor for granted. We should have such a horror of sin and really resolve today not to receive communion unless we are well disposed, not to receive communion if you are conscious 
of a unconfessed mortal sin. Now, with that in mind, I want I, final uh, segment today. We're not going to get around to the precepts of the church, so we'll kick that can down the road. But I wanted to talk about a little apologetic, some Catholic kryptonite um, regarding the uh, real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Catholic kryptonite, as you may recall, a, a uh, term we coined to describe objections to the Catholic faith that many of our separated brethren don't seem to think would even admit of an answer. You know, too many Catholics have confirmed that them uh, in that conclusion, I'm sorry to say. But, uh, you know, there is much confusion and many misunderstandings surrounding the Holy Eucharist. However, as usual, the Catholic Church has the answer. And, you know, virtually all um, evangelical and fundamentalist Christians deny the, the doctrine of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, as do the majority of mainline Protestant communities as well. Those who have some understanding of Christ being present in the Eucharist, you know, it's, it's not the same uh, as the Catholic Church, not transubstantiation. But that, that doctrine of transubstantiation, like sola scriptura, salvation by faith alone, the papacy, the Blessed Virgin, you know, it, it represents one of the major stumbling blocks for our separated brethren. So they would ask, why is it that we believe our Holy Communion is the actual flesh and blood of Jesus Christ? Is it not more reasonable to believe that Christ is present only symbolically or spiritually uh, with the bread and wine? And unfortunately, that's apparently what uh, a majority of Catholics believe as well, that the Eucharist is only a symbol. This seems self-evident to a good number of uh, modern people. Of course it's a symbol. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? A familiar question. And I would answer the same way that he walked on water and rose from the dead, because he's all-powerful and nothing shall be impossible for God. You know, when I was working at St. Joseph Communications, I've told this story before, but um, I, I always think of it when I come up in this, you know, talk about this topic. Um, back in those days, this is in the, know, right after the turn of the century, right before, late 90s, I guess, we had a deal uh, with EWTN that we would um, provide audio recordings of their TV shows. And I remember there was a show on with Scott Hahn, and he was talking about the Eucharist. And at the end of the show, they put up this toll-free number so people could call and order uh, an audio tape, right? And this fellow called, who was a, a, a Baptist guy, and his, his voice was shaking. He was so mad. He said, that wafer is not Jesus. He says, that's blasphemy. How can you believe that? And, and, you know, and I took the time to explain. I, you know, I said Catholics believe the Holy Eucharist is the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ because that's what Christ said it is. The words, this is my body, this is my blood, are in all four Gospels and 1 Corinthians. You know, it, what, what many Christians don't understand is that the Last Supper was the first Mass. And it was the fulfillment of the, the promise in John 6 when he said, I'm the living bread come down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. I'm the bread uh, of life. The, the, the bread that I give is my flesh for the life of the world. Okay? And although Jesus spoke in parables and used metaphors and similes and other symbolic language, it's very clear that in this case he was speaking literally and that the people who heard him took him literally. This is a hard saying. Who can accept it? Literally, that's um, who can listen to this? How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus confirmed that they understood him correctly. Amen, amen, truly, truly, verily, verily, I say to you, 
Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. And I pointed out that Catholics, uh, you know, faithful Catholics still believe that. And that and that uh, the, the Eucharist is the flesh and blood of Christ and that it's in the Bible, not only in John 6, but uh, what uh, St. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And by the way, and that, this is the New American Bible, but the, the word translated participation in the Latin is communicatio, literally communion. And that's why the Douay Reims Bible translates it, uh, uh, is it not a communion in the, in the uh, body of Christ? Right? That's why we call it Holy Communion, because of that verse in Scripture. And then uh, St. Paul, as we've mentioned several times, says you have to examine your conscience because if you eat and drink unworthily, you, you sin against the body and blood of the Lord. And how can you do that if the Eucharist is only a symbol? Well, this fellow was not moved. <laughs> he, uh, and so I asked him, I said, well, what do you think Jesus meant when he said, you know, I'm the living bread come down from heaven and my, my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink, and you have to eat and drink the, uh, you know, the, the, the flesh and blood of Christ in order to go to heaven. And he said, he meant that you have to accept him into your heart as your personal Lord and Savior. And I said, but that's not what he said. And he said, yeah, but that's what he meant. <laughs> We'd reached an impasse, uh, clearly, like uh, Strether Martin said in Cool Hand Luke. What we have here is failure to communicate. And so I, I decided to take a, a different tack. I said, can we agree that we both believe that the Bible is the inspired and inerrant word of God? And believing that, obviously what we have here is just a disagreement about interpretation of what is the inspired word of God. And he agreed with that. And I said, do you think that St. John the Evangelist knew what Jesus was talking about when he wrote the gospel? And he agreed with that as well. And I said, wouldn't it be great if we could ask John the Baptist, or I mean John the Evangelist, what Jesus really meant? And then he got suspicious, <laughs> you know, well, uh, I guess, you know, I, I, I presume that he was confident that I was not, in fact, going to be able to produce uh, the Apostle John. So he agreed. And that's when I pointed out that there was a fellow named Polycarp, who was a disciple of St. John, and that he believed in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist and taught others to believe it as well. One of whom was a fellow named St. Ignatius of Antioch, who also knew St. John, but was a disciple of St. Polycarp. And he too believed in and taught the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. In fact, I told him that Catholics believe that they receive the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ in Holy Communion because that is what all Christians believed up until the advent of Protestantism in the 16th century. And... I don't know how much headway I made exactly, but it stopped him. And he got quiet and he said, you know what, I have to think about this. Because although, it, I mean, it seems obvious to me as a Catholic, it was something he had never even considered. You know, so many of our separated brethren look at the Bible or they look at the New Testament and look at the New Testament times like a man looking down a well. Right, If a man looks down a well, all he can see is a long, dark tunnel in his own reflection at the other end. And that's what happens, I think, with a lot of, uh, of modern Christians, Bible-only Christians. They, they look at the New Testament and they, and they project themselves onto it, but they kind of ignore everything that happened from then until now. That Polycarp was a Christian believer 
is, you know, something that they would agree with. But it's, they don't think about the fact that Polycarp, first century Christian, was a bishop. And the Catholic Church had bishops and priests and deacons from the very earliest times. That those were, you know, part of the, to the you know, how to recognize the real church. Now, you know, I don't know what happened with this fellow and where he landed in regard to his faith because we never spoke again. But I am glad that I had the opportunity to plant the seed. And that's kind of what I want to leave you with here. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the new evangelization. And we talked about how, uh, you know, as lay Catholics, that we are called to evangelize. Um, but Jesus didn't tell you and me to go out and convert the world and baptize all nations. He told the apostles and their successors to do that. The apostles, in the form of St. Peter, told the faithful, told us, always be ready to give an explanation for the hope that is in you, but do it with gentleness and respect. That is apologetics. That's the heart of evangelization. And that is no nonsense. You know, I've often pointed out that from... uh, uh, you know, from the Didache up into the Catechism of the Catholic Church, you know, the, the Church has been insisting that, that Catholics, rank-and-file lay Catholics, know their faith. You know, if the meaning and purpose of life is to know, love, and serve God in this life and be happy with Him forever, then the first thing, the most necessary thing, is to know Him. Charlemagne, who was the, um, the first Holy Roman Emperor, Charles the Great, uh, he was a great champion of catechesis. He actually uh, sparked a, a little renaissance in, uh, in well, the Holy Roman Empire, which is mostly in modern Germany today. But uh, he wanted the people to live virtuous lives. And so he promoted catechism because, in his words, um, you know, right living is the key to happiness. He said, right action is better than knowledge, but in order to do what is right, we must first know what is right. And that's no nonsense. Wow, great to have been with you uh, today. We're going to be back next week, do the whole thing again next Wednesday. I should remind you that this coming weekend, we are going to have the uh, our annual Catholic Men's Conference here at the Sacred Heart Chapel in Covina. I think there may be a registration still open. You can go to vmpr.org if you want to come here in person and register. And if not, if you're not able to, to make it to Southern California, We are going to be uh, live streaming it. Go to vmpr.org. You can find out all about it. In the meantime, thank you for listening. Great to have you along with us. Understand that we really do appreciate, I really appreciate uh, all of your support, especially your prayers and those of you who support us financially. Can't do it without you. Till next time, may God richly bless you and your family.